Welcome to Another Chance, Episode 3. In this edition, you're going to get to know my friend Peter. Peter was in sixth grade when he began smoking marijuana, and in time, things escalated to heroin. And over a period of time, his life completely fell apart. I blew everything. I saw all my decisions from childhood to school, to failing school, to struggling, to running out of that, basically running away from home and all the drugs. I just thought everything about my life is worthless and I don't even deserve to be alive. But the good news is Peter received another chance. This is the Another Chance Podcast. I'm Brian Sussman. By the way, for more information about me or additional notes on this episode, just visit briansussman.com. You're about to meet Peter Manchester. Peter is a very likable guy from Santa Cruz, California, and he's also a very colorful personality, as you'll discover, which is brightened by the phraseology he likes to use. It's very surf-centric. Which only makes sense because Peter grew up in a neighborhood in Santa Cruz known as Pleasure Point. It's well known for its surfing and the partying that goes along with it. But you don't have to be a surfer to relate to Peter and his story. If you've ever screwed up in life, if you've ever felt discouraged or depressed by the decisions you've made, if you've ever felt like you just didn't measure up, if you come from a dysfunctional family, then you have come to the right place. Because Peter has been there, done that, and he has a story to tell of getting another chance by God. My wife and I met Peter many years ago when he was a wayward teenager, totally strung out on heroin. We were about 30 years old. Our daughter was about three. Two of Peter's older brothers, James and Steve, and their wives were our friends, and they were about our age. And they attended this Jesus-centered fellowship that we were all a part of. And then there was another brother, Mark, who was two years older than Peter. He attended a weekly Bible study in our home. So I knew all of the guys, or at least some of the guys, in this family pretty well. Their mom also attended our fellowship. And yes, there were a bunch of other Manchester kids that we didn't know, as Peter reminded me. How many kids were there? There was 12 total. 12 kids. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm the last one. (laughs) You're the baby in the family. Yeah, last out of 12. There was actually 14 births, but there was a stillborn and one that lived one day and then died on Christmas Day and went to heaven, and that was part of how my mom got saved. And But my dad wasn't a believer, so I grew up in this kind of wild bunch of 12 kids. What were, what were the age ranges? So between me and my oldest sister, the firstborn was a, a girl, daughter, her 21 years older than me, she is. <laughs> So there's not a lot of separation, actually. The kind of just yeah. kid after kid, boom, 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 boom. And how many boys? How many girls? Nine boys, three girls. So you heard that his mom got saved or came to know the Lord through the loss of a child, and his dad did not. Their dad earned a very modest living, and as you'll learn, was detached. I mean totally detached from his children's lives. And their mom was busy trying to do her best to manage the household and feed the kids. For Peter and his brothers... The easiest and cheapest form of entertainment was the ocean. So we had none money. (laughs) And uh, we just played outside, hide-and-seek, bikes, skateboards, and surfing eventually, and running to the beach. And we learned how to swim in the ocean. Um, 
just in the shore pounds and learning how to swim with my brothers out there, you know, 38th Avenue and all that stuff. So learn how to swim in the ocean. And it was a actually a great, great, could have been a really great place with a little bit more supervision <laughs> would help, but it was pretty wild. But it was the surfing that really ingratiated some of you guys into the community, right? Yeah, there was a few of us that really took to it, like five of us, and the rest of them weren't that interested and went other directions, which was probably <laughs> better for them. But uh, yeah, me and a few of my brothers really got into it and got real good. And we were at a very high level of surfing for the 80s and 90s era. We were like the guys at the point. First peak, we were the rippers out there and we were real good. And we liked it a lot. We were into it. I surfed constantly. <laughs> what do you think, why is it that there is this party element to surfing? Because that's always been the stereotype. Exactly, and especially when it was that era for us. Now it's changed. It's a legitimate professional sport, and guys are fit. They're trained. They're more like major league athletes now. Mm -hmm. But when we were growing up, surfing was an obscure, abstract part of society. They thought you were a cast-off, a loser, a bum, and just kind of worthless, which <laughs> we kind of were, actually. But, you know, that played into it where, you know, they just thought, surfing wasn't legitimate and you were just kind of an outcast of society so that led to that real kind of band of brothers thing together it's like us it's like us against the world kind of and you just became really engulfed in it and it became a complete lifestyle which unfortunately involved much drinking and partying and drugs but not all brothers got into drugs like you did do you do you have any idea why i can't speak exactly for my brothers because it's interesting the brother right above me never fell into that part of it hmm. He somehow was clean, graduated high school early, went to college, teacher. Like, I've always been jealous of him. Like, how could he do that? Yes, <laughs> like, same, same family. Oh, yeah. Only a couple years apart. Exactly two years apart. Almost to the day. I'm April 15th. He's 14th. Ten minutes later, he would have been born on my day. But it just shows you how we're all created uniquely and differently and how we grow up in our environment affects us. So I went more toward the rebellious side because that's just – I think more who I was, I lean more toward the wild kind of mm -hmm. fringes of life and kind of going for things. And if I'm going to do something, I'm just going to go all out, you know, and just go for it. And so I found surfing because I played Little League and baseball and things like that, normal sports growing up. But I was always insecure and immature for my age. And something about surfing gave me validation. I look, I see now, I didn't know at the time. But being really good at surfing, and I still remember one of the waves I got at First Peak Pleasure Point when I started getting better, and I borrowed a board from one of the ripper guys out there, and I, I got a wave, and I did really good. I did these carving turns and lip bashes, and I remember to this day, he said, whoa, little Manchester's ripping, and that like set something off in me. I realized I was looking for validation, and these guys accepted me into their pack, and that's all it took for me. And then from then on, I was like... Three times a day, I'm surfing, that's it. <laughs> so your surfing buddies basically become your second family because the situation at home provided you with zero encouragement or affirmation. Yeah, like you said, my mother came to Christ. My father did not. Um, so he stayed home, and my mom tried to take us to church and do the best she could, you know, mm -hmm. just being the only believer. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was interesting. My dad was a recluse he had a lot of personal struggles, we found out later. You don't know this as a kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All you know is he was really withdrawn, and you think he doesn't like me, and I'm kind of a hassle, and I'm in the way. Mm -hmm. But definitely my 
when he passed away later, I realized, I was grown up by then and all this, but he passed away and I realized I wasn't missing anything. I don't want that to sound harsh and I'm not blaming him for anything, but I remember thinking, am I missing anything? I don't think I'm missing anything. I had this realization that even though he had all these children, including me, he never engaged us or talked to us or helped us with life. Or, you know, you, your kids cruise in the house and you go, hey, like with mine, how's it going, Sam? You know, how, how's your day? How'd school go? You know, you, you want to engage them and encourage them. And I don't ever remember him doing it one time. He just was withdrawn and kind of odd. And then if he did engage us, it was with anger. and He wasn't happy because we were <laughs> making too much noise or irritating him. Bothering him is kind of how I always felt like I was bothering him. But there was that, that there was no validation from him. No, and I realize now I was really looking for a validation, a father figure, someone to tell me, I'm good, I love you, you're included, and to talk to me and help me with life. Hmm. And so I just went kind of off the wild side because I was left to myself, and I didn't know what else to do, really. That's, yeah. yeah. And then the surfing gave the, well you're, well, you're good at this, and I really was good at it, and I learned quickly, and I came to it fast, and I was... One of the boys, you know, out there shredding, and I, that's what I wanted, I realized. All of this underscores how significant a father is in the life of a family, especially for the children, even adult children. And what I mean by that is we're talking about a dad who needs to be actively involved in the raising of his children. Now, Peter's brother, Mark, again, a couple years older, describes the situation further, telling me that not only was their dad not engaged with the kids, but he goes into the total lack of supervision. Yeah, there was no supervision whatsoever. There was there was no curfew. There was no anything. We just we would just go over to friends and just come and go as we want and would, would never ask permission. And we were never told anything like, you can't do this, you can't do that. We, we came and went and went wherever we want. And there were no questions about that. Older brother Steve, who, by the way, is one of the nicest and most laid-back guys you will ever meet, told me that their dad checked out long before Peter came around. Like, my dad checked out. Some James James and George just burned him out, you know? And I think he just checked out. He was done. Yeah, he couldn't fight the battle anymore. Yeah, and so about, you know, Peter and, and Mark, you know, there was just nothing there. Me either. My dad wasn't involved in my life at all. And so the Manchester boys all had to find other places to gain approval, acceptance, and even enjoyment. For Peter, of course, it was surfing, but beginning in elementary school, there was something else. Drugs. I started feeling depressed, overwhelmed, and even in sixth grade, uh, experimenting with some marijuana. A friend that moved to town found his mom's stash, and we would smoke pot and watch cartoons, believe it or not. In sixth grade, I realized now, I thought, wow, that is crazy. Wacky Racers, if anyone remembers that show. <laughs> Hanna-Barbera classics. So you're 12, watching cartoons, stoned. Yeah, I mean, as sad as that is, already checking out, I realized, just overwhelmed and trying to hide. And what did, what did the marijuana do for you? What did that high do for you, given your issues with anxiety, depression, um, feeling insecure? It just gave me at least kind of a peaceful, spaced out feeling where at least I could kind of check out and kind of zone. 
and I was doing it with a couple friends, so you felt like you were accepted too. I think once again, you feel like, sure. oh, I'm with a couple buddies and we're doing this. I still got straight A's through eighth grade, but underneath me, oh, I was absolutely a mess and ruined. And by the time high school came, cool, and there's hundreds or thousands of students, I don't even know how many, but they all seem so old to me too. And there's some kids, you know, they got cars and a beard and a girlfriend. <laughs> I felt like I was about four years old, you know, in this place. <laughs> And it overwhelmed me. And even though I, I think I did have the brain smarts, the immaturity, the spiritual stunting, the emotional stunting, I just couldn't do it. They tried even giving me lighter class loads and everything. I just couldn't do it, and I dro dropped out. It wasn't that school was hard for you. You just didn't like being there. Yeah, I think that's a better way to look exactly. So not that the work was impossible, but the whole atmosphere and the whole overwhelming thing. Were you high during school? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's times I even took acid and mushrooms, and I can look back now and think, what, what was I doing? And I was right in the middle of class. And that's where I realized now I was so far gone by then. I don't know if there was any recovery in me. I just was, unless my parents somehow, I always think, not to blame them, like I said, I made my own choices, but if they somehow could have seen, saw all this and comprehended, this kid needs help. He's our son. Let's do whatever we can. We need to really sit down and talk with them and say, we got to figure this out because you're heading to some bad places. But like I said, I don't even know if they could comprehend this other world I was in. As I was talking to Peter, I wondered how could he have kept his drug usage such a secret from his mom and dad? I asked Steve that very same question and Steve said it was easy. In fact, he shared with me a story about an incident that occurred involving several members of the Manchester clan, including... Young Peter, back in the bunkhouse, behind the main house on their property. I'm trying to remember the players. I believe it was James and Tony and me and Peter. Anyway, we were back there just having a smoke-a-thon, smoking a bunch of weed, and my mom walked into a full cloud. I mean a cloud. And her comment was, oh, that's so sweet. You guys are all hanging out together. <laughs> And she came in to put some clothes away, and then she put them away and walked out, and just clueless, just absolutely clueless. Either she chose to ignore it, or she just had no idea what was going on. I'll just say she had no idea. Yeah, I'm kind of flabbergasted as I hear this story, but that just allowed Peter to continue to go down this road. And Peter was telling me, here he is in sixth grade smoking dope already, but... It was the kind of upbringing where if he wanted to spend the night at someone's house, someone else's house, including, for example, Snake's house for nights on end, that was okay. They, they never said yeah. anything about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. we, we pretty much came and went, uh, did whatever we want, however we wanted by that point. Yeah, there, wasn't, there just wasn't any you know, guidelines or discipline or anything by that point. Enter a guy nicknamed Snake. Yeah, interestingly enough, Snake, whose real name was Peter. He was a friend and one-time roommate of Steve. Now, by all accounts, Snake, everyone says, was a nice guy. Great musician. Oh, and I might also add a heroin addict. So, long story short, Snake ends up becoming a friend and in an unhealthy way, mentor of sorts, to young Peter. I was 16 and he was 36. I mean, this sounds weird. I mean, how weird is this? And my parents never said, okay, what is wrong with this picture? And fortunately, he wasn't like a molester type or anything like that. He actually treated me pretty good. But I look back now and I'm thinking, duh, father figure. 
this guy was old enough to be my father, and he liked me. He was a roommate of one of my brothers, and he was a very nice guy, had a lot of compassion. He was a gentle guy, and he was a great musician. He played keyboards, and he grew up in Jersey playing with Springsteen and the E Street Band and all those guys, and he was really good. I remember coming over to my brother's house, and he was playing, and I'm like, whoa, what is that? Because I grew up with my mom being a classical pianist, but I realized when I heard that, I thought, that's what I want to play. <laughs> I started hanging out with this guy, and at first it was great. He took me camping. I learned how to backpack and trout fish, and we scoured the Sierras and had an amazing time. But unfortunately, what I found out later was the reason why he didn't keep playing with Bruce Springsteen and those guys was he was a partier, and Bruce always wanted his band members to be clean the best they could, you know, not go crazy, because he was a real clean health guy, and he didn't want his, you know, he wanted to play gigs and make music and have people show up. And Steve told me more about Snake and his influence on Peter. We grew up with um, the keyboard player from the Springsteen band, Danny Federici. They were like childhood buddies. Um, and whenever Springsteen would come to the West Coast, we went and we, you know, we could, we did the groupie thing, you know, Snake would get us tickets and we'd go hang out with the band and follow one up and down the West Coast. So, so as Peter says it, it was the drugs that got the best of him because... He, you know, in that environment, especially Springsteen, those guys were very accomplished. They all wanted to go somewhere, and and uh, didn't matter how great a player you were, if you were on drugs, it wasn't going to work out. Yeah, you know, it, it was a funny dynamic looking back in on that as far as, because Springsteen would not allow any partying, like backstage afterwards, and he didn't do drugs. But the second, like the band went back to the motel, we'd go back there with him. And Springsteen stayed somewhere else. I never saw him, but those boys would party. <laughs> so does it surprise you that, I mean, here's Peter. Um, he's getting positive attention from an older guy. Does that surprise you, especially given the fact that your family situation was such that he wasn't getting any attention from his dad? No, it doesn't surprise me. You know, you're going to fill the hole wherever you fill it, you know, however you fill that. It was just a matter of time before Snake ended up introducing Peter to heroin. Yeah, he tried to talk me out of doing it because he said, you'll never want to stop, and I don't want to do this to you. But, of course, in his weakness, and he still helped me kind of get high. And then that's one of those, you do it five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, and then you're, you're hooked. It's quick. It's one of those. How old were you when you were, you were addicted? So it started when I was uh sometime between 16 and 17 years old. Um, and that's another thing I think, man, if my kids weren't coming home at 16 years old and sleeping at strangers' <laughs> houses for days on end, I mean, I would be gone. And uh, wouldn't you want to go get them or rescue them? But like I said, you know, they just didn't understand all this. So 16 to 17, and it lasted a couple of years. Fortunately, only a couple of years before God in intervened. God's chosen man for the intervention was Steve, who literally showed up at Snake's drug den to pull his brother out. Yeah, very bold move. I look back, and I really appreciate him and love him for what he did, because I was at the drug addict's house, and I hear a knock on the door one morning. I open up, and there he is standing there. Dude, he just came to the house and said, I'm helping you if you want help. You know, he didn't say, you need to come with me. He offered, and that's cool. I think God's like that. He never forced you to do something, but he asks you, do you want to do this? So he started the redemption process, 
I wasn't sure what he could do. He didn't even know either. He partied in his day too, but nothing like me. So I lived with him. He just got married and said, stay with us until you figure out what you do, but something has to change. Steve and his wife, Ellen, recall it like this. You know, we were fairly new uh, Christian. So uh, Ellen and I talked about it, and we said, we need to go get him. We need to get him out of there. So we just, we went and found him and said, you come stay with us. You've got to dry out. And we were really clueless about how to do like an intervention. That wasn't even a word back then. We just said, we got to get you out of that. Come stay with us. And so we took him in and he started detoxing and it was, it was ugly. You know, he'd roll around on the floor. We could hear him at night just thrashing around up there. Ellen pretty much remembers it the same way. We, we lived in a, in a that two-story condo and uh, we would, we, our bedroom was right below the, the living room, and we could hear him. He'd be laying on the couch, and he'd flop on the floor, and we could tell he was rolling across the floor. He'd get up and walk back to the couch and flop down. And then he'd drop to the floor and roll, like literally, like, tootsie roll, roll across the floor, and then get up, and all night long, we could hear him doing that. <laughs> well, he must and have been miserable. Oh, my gosh, yeah, he was so miserable, just could not sleep, you know, couldn't get comfortable. Yeah, so miserable. And then he would eat um, uh, boxes of cereal. That, those are the two things that I remember the most about that time. One evening when Peter went upstairs to get one of those big bowls of cereal, Steve and Ellen were having a Bible study complete with worship music. And as Peter listened to the music, he received a divine touch. One night I went up to grab some cereal, and they were worshiping, and God hammered me. I didn't know it at the time. I just started weeping. I didn't even know what it was, but I was just weeping, and it was the Holy Spirit. So I'm guessing then you walked into the room where they're having the meeting, and and then what happened? But they prayed for me, and that was, I think, probably even a start back then, and they knew my brother Mark, who just got saved, so I'm sure they were all praying. So living with my brother Steve, eventually I decided, I'm going to go to church, and I said, you know, why not? (laughs) What else do I got? I mean, look what I got. Which is pretty amazing because, if I remember, you were the guy who back in the day used to brag to your friends that you didn't need to go to church because the big arcing barrel of a wave was your church. Something I always remember, this is something funny. I lived on 37th Avenue and I'd always ride my bike down to the point to surf or 26th Avenue body surf if it's summer, depending on the swell and all that. And I was heading down with my fins to 26 to get piped and I remember um, Howard, Mike Howard, and he'd go, Come on, bro, let's go to church, worship God. And I'd go, no way, dude, the barrel's my church. <laughs> I was like, that is my church, you know, getting barreled and being in the ocean and surfing and body surfing and all that. We were just like so into it. <laughs> so so then you finally go to church. I didn't know what to expect, and I got in there, and as worship started, it was the same as in my brother's house. I just started weeping uncontrollably, like in the back, just going, you know, just crying. And God really was hitting my heart. I didn't even really know what was happening all the way, except it was good. I remember feeling, this is good. This is really good, actually. So, and I felt relief from a lot of the, it's weird, even for that brief moment that I didn't really care about drugs or partying or any of that stuff. I just wanted something else, I think, is what sprouted in me. And I ended up raising my hand to accept Christ. 
Now, I feel like I need to explain this because a lot of you who are seeking the truth and are curiously listening to this podcast, just as I have hoped and prayed people like you would, uh, must be wondering, what does this mean, raising my hand to accept Christ? Following God is a choice. The Creator has given us a free will, and we can use that will any way we wish. It's part of our freedom. When you're presented with the truth, for example, when Jesus, or Yeshua, that's his name, of course, in Hebrew, says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. When he says that, you have a choice to make. I mean, are you going to believe him and follow him as the way and accept him as the truth and the giver of life? Or are you going to say, no, the guy was crazy or the guy was a liar? I mean, I came to that point in my life and I said, okay, I believe. I just believe it. Based on all the evidence before me, I believe it. Additionally, whenever Jesus or Yeshua called people in the Bible, as we read, or invited someone to follow him, he did so publicly. And so many Christian congregations will ask those who want to follow the Messiah to raise their hand. And that's exactly what Peter did. But Peter still had the addiction to heroin. However, he did express an honest and sincere desire to get clean. And that's where my wife and I came in, as we recently recalled. Well, Peter was, you could tell he was stuck. And he was a, a, had a good heart, nice young man. And um, we were young and energetic and full of love for God's people. And we had the room. And so... Can you say no when you know you're given that opportunity? We had our daughter who was probably about three then, and uh, we had four bedroom home. We had plenty of room, and we just knew we had to lay down some serious rules for him. But we were willing to take him in and support him and help him as best we could. Do you remember any of the rules or how we came about the rules that we laid down for him because we wanted to instill a zero tolerance policy? Well, yeah, the goal was we kind of figured he may slip up. We hope not, but if he did, then maybe he would be so desperate that he'd go into a program. Do you remember him going through the withdrawals? Yes, I do, yeah. It It was really difficult, really difficult. Not like you see on TV necessarily, but... Um, I don't think he detoxed too long before he broke down and uh, went back to it. And when he finally went back to it, he certainly did so in a memorable fashion. Peter, or Pedro, as we finally call him, had left our home without telling us where he was going. When he finally returned, it was just as we were sitting down to a nice spaghetti meal. My little daughter's there. The places are set. Peter knocks on the door. I answer, oh boy, oh boy. He walks in and my wife picks it up from there. You no, know, yeah, he was gone and he came home and I think he was supposed to be home for dinner and that was part of the deal. And if he used once, he was out. And so um, we were sitting down. I think Elisa's in her, her high chair. We had a nice spaghetti dinner and Old Pedro comes on in and sits down, and uh, we probably said a prayer and started digging in the spaghetti. And we look up, and his face is in his plate of spaghetti, and he's like asleep. So I think we figured that was 
That was the end of that. That was our zero tolerance right there. <laughs> Brutal. That do you do you recall any of that? I do. I don't remember being out because probably because I passed out. But in the heroin crew, it's famously known as the nods. I mean, that's what people get. I see it now on people, and I realize, dude, they're high. They've come into my, you know, when I was running a, a bed shop, people would come in and stuff, and I realized I you can't you know you can't con a con the old saying. I realized, dude, I know it's gone. <laughs> So literally, in that state, you will you will just be nodding off. Yeah, and all of a high. sudden, yeah. And so you don't pass out like you're going to die or something, but you just basically fall hard asleep is what it's like. And so I, all I remember is fiddling with the spaghetti a little, and I think I probably felt ashamed, but I think it's one of those times where you know I'm getting away with this, but I don't think I'm getting away. <laughs> but you guys graciously handled everything where you wouldn't just start screaming at me or whatever because I think that wouldn't have worked. God knew. So you just kind of let me sit there. I wonder... Yeah, what were you thinking or doing? And I just was fiddling with the spaghetti, and then that's all I remember. Done. That was it. The experiment at our house was done. Brother Steve came over and collected Peter, and the next day, Peter finally showed up at a legitimate God-based rehab facility in town. It was a rare program that wasn't sponsored by the government, the state, or any funding. It was all volunteer donations whatever pe- people could pay to go in there. They owned a store and they sold furniture. The proceeds went to this program. And total faith-based. This was real Christian-based rehab. Exactly. And it was good, but it's funny. When I went to go get in it, I was desperate and I wanted to make a change. And what I did not know, I don't think I understood when I first moved in with you, when you booted me out with, if I can say it like this, sounds so cliche, the tough love thing. But really, that's what it was. You knew. You got to make a decision, dude. I did not know at the time that night you explained to me. I don't think I got it till that night. You said, I'm kicking you out, and you don't have anywhere to go. I've already spoken with your family, and they had all agreed you can't come back <laughs> to any of them. And I was like, oh, man, where do I go? It's either the streets or I make a choice here. So, And you would not <laughs> take me back as much as I begged, and I realized it was a God thing. I needed it. So I went to this rehab program, and I asked to be admitted into there, and they said, uh, I don't think so. See you later. I was like, what? And I left, and I was so fired up. I went back in there and said, what are you doing? I'm a heroin addict looking for help, and I want help. I just accepted the Lord. I don't even know how that works, but I need help. And they said, oh, okay, now let's talk. And later they said they get so many people that just want somewhere to go for a while, Drug addicts have had a bad week or a bad night, and he goes, we're not here for that. We invest in people, and you really got to want it. So I get in there. I'm clean. It was great. They were believers. They were all Christians. The volunteer staff helped, and they had Bible studies. They offered worship nights. You didn't have to be part of this, but they encouraged it, and they knew really Jesus is the answer. If you get hooked up with Jesus, then you're going to be heading in the right direction. And you couldn't have phone calls, letters, visitors, nothing for three months. Like, no contact. You're not sneaking out. You're not going anywhere. You're supervised. Because they knew what it took to really change habits and lifestyles. So you end up graduating the program, and life is good. Sure. Yeah, life was good. And I was clean and felt, you know, more alive than I had probably in my whole life. And New set of friends. New set of friends, going to church. I was just eating up every meeting. I mean, that was when we had Sunday night service, Wednesday night, Bible study worship night. It was like a worship and kind of prayer meeting slash teaching, whatever kind of we felt to do. 
and then the meetings on Sunday morning too. So it was like, and I was into all of it. I was like soaking it up, going for it. And I had also met through the rehab and through Lighthouse. It doesn't seem like singles groups happen anymore. Does do they? I don't know. Maybe just not our church. But I realized there was a pretty vibrant singles group yeah. back then. Yeah. And so there was, you know, Laura. That's where I met her, and we ended up falling in love and getting married. And we were married actually for 10 years. But that fell apart too. Mostly, I don't like to blame anybody for any of my decisions or my problems. I just, I was still, even though my life was going a lot better, I was still very raw. I was very immature. I had a lot of pain, deep buried things, bondages, things I didn't even know I had. Like God kind of works in layers on you. And I don't know if it was because I wasn't able to address those then, not strong enough, or back to this thing you said, I never learned how to approach difficulty in my life. All I knew how to do was run from it. I didn't know how to do it. I was weak and immature in that way. In some ways, I was very gnarly. I could go out and charge 20-foot surf and go into life and death surf situations most people would be killed in that didn't weren't on my level. But in other areas, I was super wimpy with life choices and how to handle the pressures of life and be a the husband and the father needed to be and all that stuff so so the pressures of life and responsibilities of life begin to mount and then you yeah so the pressures of life pressures of the marriage and the job and all that just built up to me wanting just to leave i'm done with it i can't handle this anymore and if this is what it's like to be a christian and to live in god's freedom i didn't feel free at all i just felt bound up so once again you were running away totally hiding yeah and that's where i say i it wasn't Laura's fault, and I'm not blaming her for anything. I just was in a place where I just couldn't handle pressures, how to deal with tough situations, look at myself. I just knew how to hide and run. And You know, I find it interesting that Peter is named after the Peter in the Bible. The Gospel of Luke, it's in the New Testament, chapter 22. We read of Peter's great proclamation. So there he is with Jesus, Yeshua, and he's telling the Lord, I will never deny you. I can't speak for the rest of these guys, but I will never deny you, Lord. I'll always be there for you. And the Lord looks him in the eye and says, hmm, Peter, you know, before this night is over, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning at dawn, you'll have denied me three times. I don't know what Peter was thinking at that moment, but... Shortly after this proclamation and the rebuke by Jesus, a mob comes and takes Jesus away. And Peter and all the others flee. They're not even there to to stand up for Jesus as he's led away by this mob to be crucified. So now there's a mock trial that occurs. It's in town. Peter goes there. He's watching from a distance. He's recognized by someone as being a follower of Yeshua. He denies it. He's recognized again as being a follower. He denies it. The third time, he not only denies it after being recognized, but he calls down curses, perhaps as if to prove that he's not one of those religious zealots. And no sooner has he denied the Lord for the third time, but the rooster crows. And Peter understands what has just happened. And he looks up at Yeshua, and there is our Lord looking back at Peter eye to eye. And the Bible says 
that Peter leaves weeping bitterly. But then, but then, see, this is the God of another chance. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, we read that following his resurrection, an angel tells some women who have come to visit the tomb, which is now empty, of course, to tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he's alive. The angel literally says, tell the disciples and Peter that he's alive. In other words, God didn't reject Peter for his broken proclamation and lack of faith. Instead, God was seeking Peter out. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And God wasn't rejecting Peter Manchester for his errors either, as Peter would discover. Now, this is the passage of Scripture that God eventually used to begin a healing process in Peter Manchester. His marriage was a shambles. He was not the father he wanted to be. He wasn't the man he wanted to be. And he was convinced that he was worthless, even in the eyes of God. I remember making a profession to God before and saying, I don't know what I can do in this life, and I might not be very good at much. But I think I thought back to how my dad was with all of us, and I thought, I'm going to be a good father and a husband. If there's anything I'm going to do right, it's going to be that. Interestingly, Steve says all of his brothers likely made similar professions. You know, I, I, I say it like this. I go, look, we all saw the mistakes our dad made. And so I guess you have two choices. You can say, I'm going to be bitter and angry about that, or I'm going to do what he didn't do, and I'm going to be there for my kids, and I'm going to be the best dad that I can do, you know, with the skills I have. And I think a lot of us made that choice. The problem is Peter felt as if he blew it and there was no coming back. I had ruined my marriage. My wife didn't want me back. I was going to get divorced, and I remembered this proclamation. And for me, it might sound goofy, it was like my Peter thing. I realized that was my big proclamation, and I failed. I'm an absolute failure, and I just was so broken and thought, my life is over. I'm ruined, and I don't know what to do. And God won't want me back. My friends won't want me back. And I don't blame anybody, and I wouldn't want me either. So I just really didn't know what to do. Now, at this point, another passage from the Bible began to strike Peter. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story that includes the rebellious son of a wealthy man. The son urges his father to give him his inheritance early, which he receives, and then promptly squanders with reckless abandon and ends up being a common laborer feeding pigs. Peter felt like that guy. He was given an abundant life, and he squandered it. Now, in the Bible, the son comes to his senses and returns home, hoping that perhaps he'll be received by his father, at least as a servant. And to his surprise, the father is literally waiting to lovingly greet him and receive him back, not as a servant, but as a full son. So Peter felt like he'd had enough of the pig pen, and he thought, maybe I'll just sneak back towards my heavenly father by attending a church where no one knows me. I'll just sort of be anonymous. I thought, I'll go to this church, and I'll just sneak in the back and see what happens. <laughs> and then God already had a different plan. When I got there, the worship hit me. 
I love music to start with, and then I love worship. It's my favorite thing out of all things we do at church. I'm just stoked on it. God knew that. The worship hammered me to start, and then the preacher started to preach, and of course, what was he speaking on that day? The prodigal son. Can you believe it? God's power engulfed me in my seat with people on either side, and I don't even know if they knew what was going on or they could sense something, but I just started weeping, and he just started loving on me, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, aren't you going to smash me or do something? Um, And God really loved me and deposited his love in me, and I thought, how can that be? And he spoke some things to me and accepted me back in a way. I thought, what? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And I went to talk to the pastor afterwards and let him know what happened because I thought, dude, you got to know when you're preaching what happened. And I don't even think he got it. He was just looking at me like with these big eyes going, what? (laughs) The world? You know, who is this guy? And what's going on? But I was so grateful. Peter, now separated from his wife, goes back to his humble studio apartment with a renewed sense of hope that maybe, maybe if nothing else, he could at least get his life straightened out with God. A friend suggested he read the New Testament book of Romans written by Rabbi Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul, who had his own radical encounter with Messiah Jesus. The portion of the book that struck Peter was chapter 8, and perhaps this will be of encouragement to you. It says things like, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul goes on to say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it was while reading this passage that God really met Peter. And at that moment, God's power filled the room. The only way I can explain it, his presence completely surrounded me. And once again, it was so powerful and amazing, I just fell to the floor weeping, face down. And I saw these seats that were like thrones, and the Father in the middle, and Son at the right hand, and the Holy Spirit. It's like they were one, but it was that crazy Trinity thing. And I just was weeping, and God actually said, do you know why you were the way you were? And I said, no. And he said, there's a lot of things, but a big one was you were always in bondage and discouragement and despair over the Father's love. You needed the Father's love, and that's me. And he showed me how my earthly father and all that, the way I was raised played in and how I would be in my home and never felt like I was wanted or welcomed or I was just an irritant and in the way. And I actually tried to argue with him a little bit, not argue, but like talk back, kind of talk back to him, say, how can you be doing, don't you know me? This is me. I'm the worst guy ever. I blew everything. I saw all my decisions from childhood to school, to failing school, to struggling, to running out of that, basically running away from home and all the drugs. Then 
finally God gives me a chance and I get married, then I just blow that in my one proclamation. I'm going to be a great husband and father. And I couldn't even do that. You know, I just thought everything about my life is worthless and I don't even deserve to be alive. So I don't know what to do. And he told me, I don't care about that. All that matters is what's happening now. And I've been waiting for this moment your whole life. This is all that matters. And he said, this is why in my word I say, for the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned the shame. The joy set before him. What was that joy? God said this. Restoring people to himself. The relationship with him and the love and the peace and the power. And I said, how can that be? I'm nobody's joy. And God looked at me and said, you are my joy. Even at my worst state, he accepted me like that. I could not believe it. I was amazed. And he also quoted to me, I thought it was interesting, he quoted scriptures, you know. It was like the word become flesh, and the living word was quoting the word to me. Like, God is the word, and it's alive and active, and like a two-edged sword, and it goes right to the heart. And he also said, this is why I say in Isaiah, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. And I knew I was that bruised reed, dude. I was about to break for good. And I was about to be snuffed out. And God said, I don't do that. I repair the reed. I make it better than before. And I refan the flame. And he showed me this vision of me when I was young, grade school age. And I was in a schoolyard, like, out in the field, on the perimeter, looking out of the fence, like, forlorn kid, going, where is hope? Where is, like, the thought that really was portrayed uh, portrayed to me by God was, I was looking for hope, love, somebody help, rescue me. And he said, do you want to be set free now? I said, no, Lord, that sounds lame. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Of course, I was like, are you kidding me? And he goes, today is your day to be set free. And it's like his hand reached down from that throne and picked me up out of that schoolyard and set me on the other side of that fence. And it's like he grabbed my hand like a father and said, come walk with me. He just said, can you just be set free and can you walk with me? Peter had been set free. And like the prodigal son from the pages of the Bible, He'd been restored back into a healthy relationship with his heavenly father. Peter Manchester received another chance from a God whose fountain is filled with additional chances. And isn't it good to know that despite the cards dealt to us at birth, despite the problems we create for ourselves through the poor choices we might make, that the creator of the universe, the great I am, The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that God is able to love and receive us just as we are without any preconditions and reshape our life into one of gratefulness and thanksgiving and filled with the joy and peace that passes all human understanding. To find out a bit more about Peter and his life since that defining moment, just go to briansussman.com and search for Episode 3 on the Another Chance podcast page. And so wraps up this edition of the Another Chance podcast. Please follow me via social media. It's all there at briansussman.com. And coming up on the next edition of Another Chance, 
You'll meet a guy who credits skateboarding as one of the ways in which God spared him from a gangster lifestyle. How pro skater Joe Gruber got another chance. We'll see you then. I'm Brian Sussman.